Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Have you hands up those who will go to... Uh, well, that's all right. If you're a friend of Bill, you don't have to. But others have, as supporters, any of you have been along to AA meetings? Helen has. Yes, Helen and I go. We've been along. And uh, they're, they're really fascinating. They, are really, they, tell, they just tell stories, testimonies. Uh, you know, hello, I'm Philip, I'm an alcoholic, and then I tell the story of my alcoholic life, and then I tell how I reached the, actually, the bottom of the pit, and then I came to AA, and how, uh, since I've been in AA, I'm no longer drinking, and I've been sober for X number of years, in recovery for, in a no X number of years. Um, it's, it's a really sad testimony because the stories of their alcoholic life are screamingly funny. Uh, after they get converted in AA, it's pretty, it's pretty dire, you know, it's really, it's hard. It's a kind of reverse testimony. But uh, in the funniness of the stories, they also, you know, my marriage went, my second marriage went, I lost my job, I lost my health. I, I mean, but they tell it in such funny fashion. And they are storytellers. It's not a logical discussion. It's just story after story, images. Uh, some of them are really good. One man, this is a, a post-conversion post story. I remember him saying, that he always puts his shoes under the bed because that means every morning he has to get up and get down on his knees. It's that kind of imagery they use, which is really interesting. Now, one of the characteristics of them, and they, they laugh at each other because they're all identical. The stories are identical. The people are identical. It's a, it's a kind of mindset that alcoholics have. And one of the things they refer to often is doing a geographical which Helen and I, being geographers, are always fascinated by the fact of doing a geographical. That I, you know, I was having a hard life, and so I thought, I know, I'll do a geographical. I'll, I'll move to Piemont. One man I heard him say, I'll move to Piemont. There's a hotel just there I could, I could board above that, and that will solve all my problems. Uh, and you think an alcoholic boarding above a hotel is sure going to solve the problem. But you think, by changing, by moving, they'll sort out their difficulties. But, of course... It never works, so they just do another one. So doing a geographical is one of those things that they all do, they all talk about doing, and they all laugh at each other for doing it because they all know it's a failure, it never works. Thanks for the invitation to be here tonight. I don't think this is an AA meeting, but thank you for your invitation to be amongst you. It's a terrific privilege to serve my sisters uh, with the Word of God because what you're doing in ministry is just so important to be doing. And you're very kind to invite an old fat white male of all people to speak to you. Uh, what a weird thing to do. I was attacked once by a feminist who said to me, the trouble with you is, well, many times I've been attacked by feminists, but the trouble with you, Philip, is that you're a fat white male and I said well I'll I'll go on a diet and I'll suntan more but that's it that's uh, I'm not going to change anything else uh, that's that's my limits but you're really kind of me what we're dealing with 1 Corinthians 7 is a real marvelous passage you you're quite right uh, Carmelita but oh it's a difficult one it's a really difficult one because we keep on writing in our perceptions of marriage and singleness and widowhood into the Bible rather than wrestling to see what the passage is saying itself. And so, and yet it's such an important topic and especially important topic for you, my sisters. Uh, important for your own personal lives uh, because you're all 
in the range, married, single or widowed. I think that covers where we're at. Um, but important, if, you, if you're going to be leading God's people and teaching, this is the subject that you'll be caught up in teaching, and if you're not, you should be. Because this is where the rubber hits the road in the Australian culture at the moment as we talk of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. So let me just start with some introductory comments. Uh, it's all on page 12 is the outline for you to be taking notes. I think it's page 12. Is that correct? I've got page 12. Um, to be taking the, the uh, notes there. But the introductory comment, that firstly, as our society departs from uh, Christian cultural moorings, it becomes increasingly confused about relationships in general and family life and marriage in particular. Everybody now in our society and a growing number of people in our society are affected by divorce and many want guidance about remarriage and it comes into the church all the time and it's very difficult. Envy and discontent seems to be the rule of life for people. It, sometimes I think everybody thinks the other person has it all. You know, the, the married envy the single lifestyle and the single envy the married uh, family. And the married, they, they want to be divorced and the divorced want to be remarried. And the feminists don't believe in marriage and the homosexuals are desperate to get married. And it seems that the other person has what I would like to have. And secondly, this makes Paul's letter easier to understand than in previous generations because these are missionary letters missionary letters written to a pagan mission field and 1 Corinthian was the pagan of the Corinth was the pagan of the pagan mission field he's writing to a young church in a port city to recent converts to people of pagan cultures, to people sorting out their messy lives, to people who are really confused about what we would call Pentecostalism. You, you can see the confusions in chapters 5 and 6 about sexual matters that are kind of astonishing to those of us from a settled Christian culture. Sex with a father's wife in chapter 5, sex with prostitutes in chapter 6, and this is in the church, this is part of this new world. It's slightly stranger, slightly stranger to our way of thinking, though, is the over-spiritualised way of thinking that Paul has to deal with. For understanding that the church is the bride of Christ and that the real marriage is Christ and the church in heaven and that we've been betrothed to Christ and understanding, as he says at the end of chapter 6, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we've been bought with a price and have to glorify God with our bodies, uh, therefore not uniting ourselves, not uniting Christ to prostitutes, but using our bodies for holiness, understanding all that kind of thing can feed into the false teaching of the first century, which is around in the 21st century, but not as common in Australia, that sex is itself unholy, especially sex with a non-Christian spouse. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 indicates that there were people, teachers, people whose consciences have been deeply seared, presumably by their own non-Christian background experience, who forbade marriage. And that marriage is to be forbidden was one of the teachings of the deceiving spirits, and the Corinthians were full of spirits. And so it had led false teachers to pronounce marriage is forbidden for, for Christians. So that's where 1 Corinthians 7 starts, with the question put to Paul in verse 1. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Not to touch a woman is what the Greek actually says. 
Thirdly, however, as we read this passage, we must be aware of our own Pharisaic legalism that looks to loopholes in God's word so that we can appear like we're Bible people but at the same time ignore what the Bible says. You do this partly by using the words and we're all about words and there's going to be translation difficulties in this passage and I'm sorry, tonight's talk, tomorrow night's talk, hard work because I'm actually going to deal with the words and the words matter. But words are what legalists play with as well. So a word like divorce, what does divorce mean? In modern English it means the right to remarry. But the word that actually is being used is the right to separate. Separation is not necessarily divorce. That's, they're two different things. Uh, engaged, if you've got the NIV, you'll see engaged is used. Engagement is an intention to marry. These days it's a, it's a shacking up together before marriage. But betrothed is a different word, which is the word that the ESV uses, which is not so much an intention to marry, but a legal contract that you will marry, that you are bound to marry. Now, which is the right word to use? You see, we think of our experience, our world, which uses a word like engagement, that doesn't use a word like betrothed very much. But betrothal was the first century word, not engagement. But the actual Greek word is virgin, which is a word we don't use very much at all. My very first Sunday school teaching, I was about 12 or 13 when I first taught Sunday school, and I had a trial lesson. I'd been through six months of learning how to teach, and then I had a trial lesson with a group of nine-year-old girls, and I was asked to teach the, the, the Apostles' Creed to them. And as I was teaching the Apostles' Creed, remember I'm 13, Right, 14 possibly at the maximum as I'm teaching the Apostle Gloves, this little girl puts her hand up and says what does the word virgin mean? <laughs> it's a wonder that I ever taught another Sunday school class actually I wasn't altogether sure myself at that stage <laughs> let alone able to explain it to nine year old girls let alone it was a very bad moment I'm scarred you can see the scarring that is still there these many years later do not ask those kinds of questions please sisters Fourthly, look at the structure of the chapter. It comes in three sections answering two questions. Question one is about having sex. That's verses 1 to 16. Then verses 17 to 24 is Paul's teaching on contentment. And then the second question comes on who should we marry in uh, verses 25 to 40. Or should we marry? Not just who should we marry, but should we marry? So what I'm dealing with tonight is question one on having sex and then dealing with some difficult case studies before looking at Paul's teaching on contentment. Tomorrow we'll look at Paul's teaching on contentment again. We'll overlap that little section because that's the heart of the, of the passage before we look at question two on should we marry. So we start here where Paul goes on sex in marriage in verses 1 to 7 with three steps. Firstly, each one's to have his own. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because of sexual immoralities, each is to have their own wife or their own husband. And this statement shocks many people today for different reasons. Uh, it gives the reason for marriage as avoiding sexual immorality. 
Many find that less than noble as a reason for marriage. I mean, there's no mention of love, of compatibility, of soulmates, of... But we need to take the Bible. The Bible's better than we are. Always understand that. It's much cleverer than we are. It teaches us things. You see, it acknowledges the reality of sexual passions and weakness. And secondly, it sees that as a problem for both males and females. Not just You didn't have to wait to the 21st century feminists to discover that women have sexual needs and can be immoral. It's, it's there back in Paul's writing. And thirdly, it sees holiness as more important an issue than our needs or our needs or romantic notions of marriage. See, for a world that doesn't take holiness seriously, this is a terrible verse. But if you take God's holiness seriously then it's right. Better to marry than to be caught in sexual immorality. Notice also that this passage also teaches monogamy, that each is to have their own spouse. Not each other's spouse, of course, but not many and multiple either. See, with polygamy, the rich man and his harem and the poor man is castrated. But God has provided equal distribution of men and women. And the interference with the gender balance by abortion causes terrific long-term social problems, as has happened in parts of China and India, and is going to happen now in New South Wales and, I suppose, other parts of Australia. It creates terrible problems because God knows what he does and he provides one for one. However, that's moving on to other issues, so we'll leave that and move to this. Go back to Paul's second step in his answer. See, the Corinthians' concern, a man shouldn't so much as touch a woman. His answering is the question of authority and deprivation. For when he talks of each having their own spouse, what he means by marriage involves sexual activity. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal, her marriage rights, and likewise the husband, wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now you see there, verse 4a there, that's a feminist chant if ever you want. See, you wicked, evil man. But look at 4b. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There should be enough sex within your marriage to satisfy your partner's needs. It astonishes modern minds because modern minds have been filled with anti-Christian propaganda and especially anti-St. Paul propaganda. It astonishes them to read what's being said here. Look at five points. One, sex within marriage is commanded. It's not an optional extra, it's commanded. Two, the denying sex within marriage is condemned. Three, that the need of both males and females is accepted and provided for. And four, that the authority of both husband and wife is commanded and enshrined in the very teachings of the scriptures. That five, that the authority is not over your own body, but your partner's body. It's an extraordinary passage, isn't it? 
If you wanted to be an egalitarian, you couldn't be more egalitarian than that passage. Everything that's given to the man is given to the woman. Everything given to the woman is given to the man. And it's about sex. And the sexual relationships within marriage are to be lots of sex as the partner needs it. Now, my sister, some of you are not married. You think this has got nothing to do with me, but if you're going to be leading God's women, you're going to be involved in talking to them about it. And you need to know what the Bible teaches. You don't need to know everything about sex to be able to talk about it, but you do need to know what the Bible teaches. And that's what it teaches here in this passage. And you need to take young wives to a passage like this, or wives after their first child has been born, when they have to be reminded sometime that there's a husband around. You know, there, there are times when you need this information. This, friends, can be some of the most helpful marriage advice available. For their differing sexual drives of spouses is one of the basic reasons for unhappiness within marriage. Uh, the very, uh, it's very easy for the spouse who has a lower libido to make the one who wants to have sex more often to be placed in subjection to rules and regulations. If you do that, if you do this, then to be made to feel unspiritual, you're just a, a maniac, you're always after sex, to have to, to beg or to force the issue, both of which are bad, <laughs> Neither of which should happen within a Christian marriage. See, the change in focus from looking after my own needs to providing for my spouse's needs is of the very essence of love, other person-centeredness. It's of the essence of unity in marriage and happiness in long-term sexual relationships. The idea that because we're united to Christ and therefore not to have any sexual relationships because sexual relationships are unspiritual, kind of carnal, physical, not godly, not even have them with our spouse is quite contrary, is explicitly contrary to what the Bible is teaching. Christian marriages should be very sexual. However, there may be time and occasion to cease from sex Within a marriage, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of lack of self-control. Again, notice the restrictions to this. Do not do it. It's not a normal thing. It's the exceptional thing. And do it only by mutual agreement. And do it only for a limited time. And do it only for a good reason, like devoting yourself to prayer for a season. And then do come together again. Don't make it as a permanent new state of our married life. It's only a short season that you've already agreed upon. And sixthly, it does expose you to moral danger. Ceasing sexual relationships for those who are used to sexual experience is a danger to their own morality. So, within marriage, again see the high and important place Paul places in sex within marriage. It's normal, it's healthy, it's to be expected. And those of you who are married, when you go home, your husbands will be pleased to hear about this. <laughs> now, this, says Paul, is a concession, not a command. 
The word this comes at the end of verse 6 in the ESV translation, and it could refer to quite different things. But I take it as referring to the instruction of verse 5, that is, the exception. The exception is a concession, not a command. You don't have to do it. You don't have to have a season of celibate prayer. You can. It's conceded. But it's not a command. If, if you and your husband do not feel like ever taking time off sex in order to do something, well, that's all right. You don't have to take time off sex. Sex is the normality of what your married life will be about. Personally, Paul can see the advantage of being in his own state in this matter. That is, able to be undivided. His devotion to the Lord, of verses 34-35, we'll see tomorrow night, that undivided devotion to the Lord, he sees an advantage and he sees marriage as its difficulties, but he knows that different people have different gifts from God. Some have this gift, others have the gift of being married. It's an issue of different gifts, not of different spiritualities. Paul is not more spiritual because he is single. And someone is not less spiritual because they're married. However, while this advice is straightforward for married Christians, what about the difficult cases? The kind of difficult cases you meet in missionary situations like Australia in the 21st century. Actually, like wherever you go if you preach the gospel. For if you preach the gospel, people will get converted, and people who get converted have a lot of baggage. In the 21st century, I think they have more baggage than they did in the 20th century, and it's only getting worse. And so he gives three case studies about getting married, staying married, and mixed marriages. So we turn in verses 8 and 9, where Paul tells the unmarried to get married. To the unmarried, and widows, I say, that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, this is not about the single person, the virgin. That comes tomorrow night, verse 25 following. But about the unmarried or the widowed. And now I've got to start clarifying some translation problems. Every, every translation has its problems. I couldn't find one that I agreed with, so I decided to give you what is the truth. <laughs> Let's change that one that we put up a few moments ago to this, and notice I've struck out some words. Can we see it? It's a bit vague, is it? It's too white and we need black against this background. We'll fix that tomorrow, will we? Um, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain, and the word single doesn't occur there in the Greek, to remain as I am. But if they cannot exercise, that's not right, that's not there. If they are not exercising self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn. And the phrase with passion is not there either. So the translators have tried to help you understand it, because... That's how they see their job. But it's a demarcation dispute between preachers like me and translators. Translators want to do the preacher's job and preachers want to do the translator's job. Little <laughs> union demarcation dispute taking place here. Uh, with passion does not help you. Get rid of that. Single, there is no word. There's no Greek word for single. So 
there's a problem when you're going to put it into modern English. Uh, and it's not, more importantly, verse 9, it's not that they cannot exercise self-control, it's that they are not exercising self-control. Two very different things. Let me take through them. Firstly, one by one. Firstly, there's no such word as single in the New Testament. Not, not in our sense of, you know, the single. Or, oh, what's that actress now said? She's... Um, Self-partnered, yes. Self-partnering is not in the Bible. Right? Single is not in the Bible either. You can laugh at self-partnering because, well, that's just so absurd, isn't it? There are people who marry themselves now, official marriage services, by the way, for self-partners. But the word single, which we've come to accept as being the normality these days, that's actually not there either, which is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Uh, the emphasis is on remaining. It's not on singleness. For contentment in God's allocation of our situation of life is the point he's coming to in verses 17 to 24. It's really about contentment and remaining, not about the value or lack of value of being single. Secondly, the word is not cannot, but are not. It's not about your ability or inability to remain unmarried or widowed, but it's about your present inappropriate sexual behaviour. The unmarried woman, not the virgin, the unmarried woman, she could be divorced, she could be the, the woman at the well in, uh, in John chapter 4, uh, she could be somebody who's uh, never married, uh, it could be the prostitute, the unmarried woman and the widowed woman in Corinth, professing Christ, were active sexually. And what do you say to them? I may say, this brilliant book that was written some years ago by Tony Payne, and my name's attached to it, um, is wrong on this passage in particular. And there's a little book by John Richardson which points out our error. And having looked carefully at what he says, John Richardson's right, this book's wrong. But the next edition... It hasn't become, we're still in the first edition. See, what do you say to a de facto couple who are living together and now become Christian? Or one of them has. What do you say to the three-time divorced couple who got converted and came to our church and weren't married? What do you say to the widow who's living with someone else? You see... I had it all worked out when I came out of Moore College, exactly what to say. And then I went to St Matthew's Manly back in the days when you didn't have civil celebrants and so the only place to get married was church. And all these people from the suburb came to be married at St Matthew's Manly, which is a great church right in the middle of the Corso. It's a great wedding church if ever there was. When we ran three or four weddings every Saturday afternoon. And all these people came and they came all mixed up and muddled up and confused and with his and her children and their children and then they wanted to get married what do you do? How, what recovery ethic do you have? It's very simple. A virgin gets married to a young man who's never had sex either and they live together for the rest. That's simple. But life is not, especially when you're on the mission field and people getting converted. So what do you say to them? Thirdly, the word with passion in verse 9 is, is, is not there. It's added because they're trying to understand what it means to be burning. And they might be right. It could be burning with passion, 
But it could be burning with shame. Or it could be burning in the judgment. It's, it's better not to burn. How do you understand that? To the unmarried and the widows. So here's how I would translate it now. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain as I am. But if they are not exercising self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn. Well, then, what is it then to remain as I am? Paul, as best we know, was unmarried, possibly a widowed. He's content with God's sovereign appointment for his life. He's not distracted by the duties of family life, uh, of duties towards his wife. And so he can serve the Lord without distractions. All of that tomorrow night. He's not therefore pursuing marriage, but rather remaining unmarried or widowed, but in holiness and self-control. This he would commend to others. This is what he would wish for others because it's good. Not in the absolute sense that married people are spiritually inferior or that you're sinning if you marry or you must never change and get married, but in the sense that there's nothing wrong with being unmarried. And there are practical advantages in being unmarried. This advice of Paul is too often ignored by Christians. The ministries of some people have been fantastic in part because they weren't married. I mean, some of them are very famous, like John Stott or Dick Lucas or John Chapman. Others are famous only to God. (laughs) We all know, don't we? The, The retired lady in our church who gives at least three days a week of ministry, evangelizing, welcoming people, prayerfully assisting in prayer. You might be here now, actually. Those ones are known to God, which is more important than being known to us. And their singleness, their unmarried state, enables them to do things. The world knows that the way ahead in your career is never to marry. Stay child-free. And for the sake of human selfishness and pleasures, they choose not to marry. It's sad, isn't it? That for the something for the sake of something far greater, namely the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not willing to consider making the same sacrifice that people will for their money-grubbing careers. We must avoid mariolatry. That's mariolatry with an extra R. <laughs> mariolatry, such as you see in Bridget Jones. Life's meaning and purpose is not summed up in getting married. However, Paul knew that his situation in life is not everybody's situation. Uh, He was called as a young Pharisaic Jew hell-bent on persecuting Christians, but others were called in different circumstances. And those already involved in sexual relationships, he says they should marry. Uh, This is not the only group who should. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he tells younger widows to marry, that they should marry as well. Verses 11 to 14 in 1 Timothy 5. He then turns to the second case study, where he commands people to stay married. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but... If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. 
Paul has more than his wish or advice on this topic. He has the command of the Lord Jesus. And that command is that we are not to separate. For what God has joined together, let not man rend asunder. We're not free to separate either the wife from the husband or the husband from the wife. Yet again, there is an acceptance of some possibility of change in verse 11. But if they do separate, don't separate, but if you do, then they're to stay single, as we would say. That is, we're not to separate in order to change partners. There may be reasons to separate. Bad reasons, good reasons. Uh, you may separate in order to, ha to have some anger management therapy that some men particularly need, and some women do occasionally too. Or you may separate to avoid domestic violence or to resolve some fundamental incompatibility in your lives. But not to divorce in order to find another partner. That's not sorting out the problem at all. You separate only to resolve the issue between you as spouses, for God has made you one, and the law courts of Australia can't undo what God has done. Must not undo what God has done. See, there's a difference between divorce and constructive separation. A difference that the world just does not seem to understand. Can I warn you, as you refer people to counselling, counselling is a good thing, but you've got to understand the counselling you're referring to people to. You see, marriage counselling is not the same as personal counselling and is not the same as divorce counselling. See, there are some people who specialise in divorce counselling. You send the person along to the counsellor, but you didn't notice it was a divorce counsellor. The divorce counsellor helps people get divorced. <laughs> Right? And, and tries to stop the kind of domestic violence that occurs when one partner's not willing to accept divorce. But that's very different to the marriage counsellor who actually works on the relationship and tries to preserve the marriage, which is different to the personal counsellor who's not interested in what the spouse needs or the spouse wants or the spouse feels, but is only trying to help you actualise, fulfil, determine what you want. So you're not counselling, but what kind of counselling? Christians are committed to marriage. What God has joined together, man mustn't separate. And so Christians know that anything is forgivable. That's hard because some of the things people do to each other is pretty unforgivable, isn't it? But it's not. Anything and everything is forgivable. And furthermore, we know under the power of the Holy Spirit, everybody and anybody is able to be changed. So we always leave open the chance of change. And we remain married even if we're separated. Even if we never can be reconciled. You see, when we said, for better, for worse, we didn't understand how worse, worse could be. <laughs> but we meant what we said. And we must mean what we say. Now, I'm not commending easy reconciliation. No, just, you know, just forget it, move on. You know, just sweep it under the carpet, cover it up with wallpaper. No, 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 no. Atonement is the way we come to forgiveness. It's by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that our repentance can bring us forgiveness. 
We've got to have atonement in there. However, if we cannot stand being alone, well then that will motivate us. We should look how to resolve our differences, how to come to reconciliation. And for Christians, now I'm not recommending easy non-atonement forgiveness. It's deep and hard work to come back together. But if we don't want to be alone, that's the alternative. It's not go find another partner. That's never the alternative that's given to us in scriptures. So the third case study is, you see my sisters how important this is, one for you and two for your ministry to others. Because <laughs> you come across all these kinds of issues right in 1 Corinthians 7 if you're involved in any evangelistic ministry in Australia today. You'll come to these very thorny problems. The third case study is of mixed marriages. To the rest I say, verse 12, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? See, he turns now to the rest, that is, to those married, to unbelievers. He's still not dealing with what we would call single, and that he would call virgins. That's tomorrow, that's the second half of the chapter, or the last third of the chapter. Now he turns to those who are married, but are not married to believers. Presumably those converted after marriage. For believers will not place themselves in unity with unbelievers, especially a sister should not submit to a man who is not living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, strange mistakes have been made. And for those in this difficult position, however they got there, here and other parts like 1 Peter 3, is the scriptures teaching as to what to do. I say strange, there was one lady I knew in a church and I haven't seen her for many years but I'm sure she'd be dead and in glory now because she was an old lady when I met her. She married an unbeliever after she became a Christian because she had lived with him beforehand. Well, no, she hadn't lived with him beforehand but they had hooked up, I think is the modern phrase. She wouldn't have used that phrase beforehand. Then she got converted and as a Christian she knew she should be married. So she went and married this unbeliever who was very anti-Christian. Um, it was dumb. You know, ten years later when I met her, she said it was the biggest mistake of my life. I, I only just become a Christian and no one warned me and I just went ahead and did what I thought was the right thing to do for a Christian to do. But So there's all kinds of reasons why you wind up with... But I guarantee in your churches there are women who are married to unbelieving husbands. And you need to minister to them. Here's the passage. That's an important passage to take hold of, isn't it? So, what's he saying here? Again, the principle is to stay where you are. You don't have to leave because your spouse is an unbeliever. If they're happy to live with you, stay there. But that raises two questions. One, what about the unholiness of the unbeliever? 
Won't that be contaminating the holiness of the believer? Uh, this is such, in a sense, a Jewish question. You see, to touch the unclean thing contaminated you. So you were never to touch the dead person or the Gentile or any blood. But not so in the Gospel. That's one of the reversals of the New Testament, isn't it? For Jesus reached out and touched the leper and said, Be clean. The man who ran around everywhere saying, Unclean, 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 became clean because Jesus touched the unclean. Rather than contaminating you, you will be sanctifying them. Otherwise your children would be unholy. That's not to say the spouse is saved, but contact with you sanctifies the sex rather than making you unclean by their sex. Though it does say the children of believers are in some kind of special relationship with God, doesn't it? It's a strange, we don't know what that relationship is, but there is something special about the children of believers. Okay, well, then what about those who aren't willing to live with you? Verse 15. Well, then, that's the occasion when you make the change. You don't hold on to them, hoping to see them converted. The rhetorical questions of verse 16 is read in opposite ways by different people, but I'm persuaded it means don't hang on in the hope of conversion. But then, is the Christian free to remarry? You're called to peace, not to conflict. And you're not responsible for the separation and you can't prevent it. If the person leaves and sets up house with another, then they've destroyed the marriage, not you. And so Paul says in verse 15, you are not enslaved. Uh, the NIV has you're not bound. It's a slightly weaker translation. Enslaved is the word. And in that case, it's like Jesus' exception clause in Matthew 19. Though that's explaining one difficult verse by another. <laughs> Throughout this chapter, Paul is working out the principle I've called the assigned walk. This is the second section of the chapter, verses 17 to 24, which lies at the heart of the chapter and the heart of the way in which Paul argues. You see it in several places. Uh, you'll know 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 is all dealing with the same subject. But in the middle, there's a whole chapter on love. Because chapter 12 sets out the problem. Chapter 13 gives you the key to the answer to the problem. Chapter 14 applies that key of love. Well, here, he's setting out the problem of sex and marriage. Now he gives you the key to understanding everything before he applies it on to the issue of whether to marry. So, verse 17. It seems to have nothing to do with the subject. but actually is the theological gospel heart of the subject. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time he's called already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. 
But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. See, the Lord has controlled where we are in, in life be it Australians or female or rich or poor, tall, short, Chinese or blonde, what you are, God has determined. And we must learn contentment by accepting the Lord's assignment of life for us. Well, my sisters, I, I don't want to go into this because I'm sure you would be better in going into it with each other than with me going in with it for you. But learning contentment about yourselves seems to be one of the big problems for women in Australia today. You know, everyone wants to be something other than they are physically. The young women, it's just a torture as they, they can tell you exactly what's wrong with their anatomy, which part doesn't fit the ideal that they would dream to be, and how they torture themselves trying to be the perfect whatever. It's, it's a, you know the issue better than I do. You talk to women more than I So learning contentment. Learning to know, I am the perfect Philip Jensen. Right? <laughs> I can't be better than I am. There's no point trying to be taller. No point trying to hang on to my hair longer as if I'm not going bald. No point kind of, I am what God has made me to be, except for sin. <laughs> but in every other respect, this is me. This is the way I was made. I can't get better than this. <laughs> you may wish me better than this. <laughs> Helen does often, but it's not going to happen. It's me. And I'm happy with me being me. Why? Because God has made me me. If God wanted me to be taller, if he wanted me to be Chinese, if he, if he wanted me to, to be... He could. He didn't. So therefore I'm to be happy. Right? Happy because God is God in, over the anatomy, over the body, over the person. So wherever or whatever you were when you were called as a Christian, stay there. You don't have to become something else just because you've become a Christian. A Christian sw street sweeper can be every bit as a Christian and as holy as a Christian monk or a professor of theology. Verse 20 is the principle. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Not that your position is your calling. No, your calling is the gospel when you are called into Christ. But the position you are in when God called you with the gospel is to be his person. So Paul illustrates with issues that he often deals with that seem not to be the Corinthians' problems and seem nothing have to do with marriage. But they are two side illustrations that if you understand them, then you apply them over to the marriage issue circumcision and slavery, or our translation puts it as bond servants. There's no point getting circumcised or removing your circumcision, for circumcision is of no importance. It only symbolised keeping the commandments of God. So don't worry about being circumcised, rather keep the commandments of God. 
Mind you, Paul's advice is not absolute. Remember Timothy, he had him circumcised in order to go on the mission field. Now there's a test of a willingness of a young man to go on the mission field, <laughs> if ever there was one. But there is, you see, it's, it, because circumcision is a nothing, Paul is willing to do it. And he's willing to not do it. Because it doesn't matter. What matters is what it symbolises, namely, keeping the commandments of God. Likewise with slavery. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free man. For in Christ, the slave is a free man. And in Christ, the free men are the slaves of Christ. Our whole world is now changed by being Christians. So don't become a slave because you've already been bought by Christ Jesus. And don't be concerned about being a slave because he's already freed you. In all this, remain where you are. But again, notice it's not absolute. Of course, it's better to be free than a slave. And so verse 23, never put yourself into slavery. And verse 21, if you get a chance to get out of it, then take it. So it's not saying, oh, you were converted as a slave, you must never, ever change. That's not what's being said. He's just saying, it doesn't matter. Don't, don't get wound up. You can be a Christian slave. And you can be a Christian free man. So therefore, being a slave or being a free is not an ultimate issue. Notice the difference Christ makes. It's not in place in this world or in society. It's not in your place in this world. See, people keep seeing the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And they keep imagining their problems would be solved if they could just get over the fence and change to a different place. Their life will be happier if they're in a different place, a different location, a different social grouping or standing, a, a different set of relationships, a different job. It's doing a geographical, like my alcoholic friends. See, doing a geographic is a description, a definition of from a woman, a, 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 an alcoholic's daughter who went through it with her mother. Doing a geographic is a term alcoholics often use for acting on the impulse to start over by moving to a new town or state, instead of making any internal changes. It's the anywhere but here part of the disease that says, remove yourself from this, go someplace new, and everything will be better. It never is. <laughs> you just take your alcoholism to the next place. You need to work on the inside. Change in this world is often not change at all. Divorcees have a very much higher failure rate in their second and third marriages than they did in the first. In fact, it's less than 10% chance of success on the third marriage. Changing spouses doesn't change problems. It doesn't improve relationships. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean changing who and what you are situationally. A minister I know had a family arrive at his doorstep. Uh, the man, uh, the, the head of the house, he was there with his wife and his kids, <laughs> said he wanted all his children baptised and he and his missus married. The minister asked why? Well, what's the sudden change that had come upon him? He didn't even know this man. 
And the man said that he'd accepted a promotion at work. He was no longer on the factory floor. He'd become a foreman. And now that he was a foreman, he was part of the management team and he had to have a respectable life and therefore he needed to get married and have his kids baptised. Well, you don't have to adopt a different lifestyle, the lifestyle of the managers. And that's not what Christianity is about, is it? That may be what management's about, but it's not the way of Christianity. If he'd been converted, well, he could have stayed as a worker, couldn't he? Or he could have accepted the job as the foreman. You can be a foreman Christian, you can be a worker Christian. It really is an irrelevance. But he had to become respectably churched in order to make the social change. See, the real difference that Christianity makes is not geographical. And that's what the AA people know. Because every time someone says, I did a geographical, the whole place erupts in laughter. Because they've all done them, and they all know they don't work. But the world outside alcoholics are not nearly as honest as my alcoholic friends are. Alcoholic friends are very, very honest because they've actually been in the gutter. And they know. They're like the prodigals eating the pig's food. They actually know. Whereas the people outside, they think, well, if I change my job, or if I go for a promotion, or if I change my girlfriend, or if I... They think changing situations will solve nothing. It's the gospel changes me that changes everything and makes my situation unimportant, really. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but now, like the bride at her wedding, we are living for our groom. We're turning our life over to him. We're looking to him for all things. He is the object of our heart's desire. He is the one we're seeking to please when we join into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. This may, not, this may mean changing nothing. It may mean changing lots of things. The circumstances of life, Yes, you could be changing that. Let the thief no longer steal, but work with honest hands. There's a change in situation. It can mean a change in situation. But it will mean that we will try to get rid of sin in our life and at every point of its intrusion into our life. It will mean, therefore, putting straight the sexual side of our life. For those who are widowed, and divorced, widowed uh, or, or unmarried and living sexually immoral life, it'll mean getting married. But for those who are living in married life, it means they will seek to please their partner instead of please themselves in satisfying the sexual needs of their spouse, be it male, be it female. It means looking after each other. For those of us who are married, it means we won't separate but seek to resolve the issue itself. Although there could be reasons for separating. Physical violence being the top of the list there, of course. But even that, we will separate in order to bring about real change. Not just paper change, but real change in hope of being able to restore a marriage that God has created. And if we're married to unbelievers... Well, we may stay married with them, or if they want to leave, it means... See, there are situational changes, but they're not the important thing. The important thing is the personal change that we have.
And so let me remind you about what it is to become a Christian. Very important. See, when I invite people to become Christians, I always get them to pray this prayer, which comes out of the little booklet, Two Ways to Live. Can we read it there? You see? It's, it's the, I'm going to pray it now. I'm going to invite you to pray it now because I don't know who you are. You mightn't be Christian. There's all kinds of reasons we're here. And you might need to actually think about this. There's, uh, there's many a person who's well down the track of Christian ministry but have never sorted out the change that is needed. But you'll see, the first paragraph of it really is about yourself. I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I, I, I. I don't deserve. I am guilty. I need forgiveness. The second paragraph is about thanking God, thanking him for sending his son to die for me that I might be forgiven. No easy forgiveness there. And thanking that he rose from the dead to give me new life because we really believe in change. The third paragraph, the last sentence, is really the, the prayer of the prayer. Please forgive me. I need forgiveness. Jesus died that I'll be forgiven. Please forgive me. And change me. How? Not by changing my situation in life. <laughs> change me by now I have Jesus as my ruler. That is the change. That's the turnaround in our lives. That we now seek to please him. Well, let me close by praying this prayer and invite you to come and pray it with me, especially, especially if you know you actually need to do this and you need God's change in your life. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. And I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me, that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.